Welcome to Asia Abridged, where we highlight the best moments from Asia Society events. I'm Eric Fish. In this episode, we hear from Howard French, former New York Times China correspondent and author of the new book, Everything Under the Heavens, How the Past Helps Shape China's Push for Global Power. In these clips from his appearance at Asia Society in New York, he discusses how history shapes China's ambitions for territorial gains and a greater presence on the world stage. He argues that this could be a recipe for a clash with the United States, and that the most dangerous period for the two countries is likely to be the next 10 to 15 years. The other voice you'll hear is Orville Schell, director of Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. They start by discussing Jiang Zemin, the Chinese Communist Party General Secretary from 1989 to 2002. Jiang, who had a, who was a very personable character, and you know, had a, was very easy at ease with himself um, in public and on the world stage, um, was also capable of doing things that were, you know, really kind of deeply calculated in terms of statecraft and and hard nosed. Uh, and one of them, which is kind of clashes with the public image we somehow have of him, right? Um, and one of them. Of one very important uh, of those things uh, was the creation post-1989, post-Tiananmen, of the national, Nationalist Education Campaign. Patriotic Education Campaign mm -hmm. is the official name of it, which is with us today still, mm -hmm. and which I think has been really determinative of the change of attitudes that you described. That you came said, out of 89. That came out of 89. You said the 90s were still pretty friendly, this isn't something that you can turn on a dime. You've had a generation of people educated one way. There's a shift in the education, uh, a very fundamental shift in the emphases of national education, which a, with a, which a state like the Chinese state can really control rather tightly. Uh, and it takes years for the, this thing to give its full flush of effect, right? Um, and so that's where we are now. Um, a whole generation of people now has grown up under uh, patriotic education, which is basically saying that China has nothing to be ashamed of and everything to be proud of. And anybody who doesn't like what we have to say or who we are or whatever should just, I'll let you fill in the blank with the root expression. Um, I think, you know, this, is, this was Zhang's doing. This was his idea. Uh, and he saw it through to completion, and I think it's one of his greatest legacies. The Patriotic Education Campaign, established in 1991 and fully instituted by 1994, laid the groundwork in schools, museums, and media to give China a new national narrative. According to this narrative, for thousands of years China was among the most, if not the most, powerful and respected civilizations. But then foreign imperialists brought the country to its knees during a so-called century of humiliation, spanning from the Opium War in 1839 to the expulsion of Japanese invaders in 1945, and finally ending with communist liberation in 1949. According to this narrative, the Communist Party has now lifted the country off its knees and is leading China in a national rejuvenation back to its position of respect and greatness. French and Shell discussed how different Chinese leaders have gone about fulfilling this mission. So Zhang had to ingratiate himself. Here, here's Jiang Zemin's task, the leader in the 1990s. <clears throat> ingratiate, that's an interesting way to put it. I think yeah. you're right about that. <clears throat> Zhang had to ingratiate himself from a position of still of relative weakness on the world stage to get other countries to play along with China, to really fundamentally allow China successfully, in, as it was, into the World Trade Organization, to kind of greet China as a peer 
uh, in the system in the system of world leadership. Zhang was really quite successful overall in 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 doing this. Um, uh, under Xi Jinping, the challenge is totally different. Uh, China has you know achievements too long to list uh, that go to measurements of comprehensive national power. China may not be a true full rival yet of the United States in those terms, but it's in the picture um, and is moving forward. And so Xi's task is not to ingratiate himself. Xi's task is to impose himself, to say, we've arrived. Here we are. China dream. Deal with it, right? This is who we are, and all that stuff that was in patriotic education for the last generation about we're not apologizing has now become manifest. Mm -hmm. uh, no more Tao Guang Yang Hui, hide your head and bide and your bide time. Bide your time, correct. French said that a major component of the national rejuvenation narrative is reclaiming territories China feels history entitles it to. Many of these territories, like Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and Macau, have already been retaken. But some areas remain elusive, like Taiwan, which Beijing considers a breakaway province, and islands in the resource-rich East and South China Seas. The United States' dominant military presence in East Asia has so far prevented China from reclaiming these territories. But the power balance is rapidly shifting. This is particularly true in the South China Sea, where China has been expanding its presence and building military installations on disputed islands, despite protest from the United States. And the direction I sense we're heading in is one of that conforms with kind of other broad patterns of history between great powers. And that's a period of, 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 of uh, constant testing. Uh, and that a stable modus vivendi will emerge one of two ways. Either through a, a successful management of this testing over time, or through war. Uh, I hope that we don't have a war. I don't wish that upon anyone. Uh, I, I can't imagine it being good for anyone. Um, but this is what we've seen across history. And, and we would be foolish to discount the possibility that the United States and, the, and China could come to war over the South China Sea, even though if you ask most rational people in either society in positions of influence and power, they would tell you, we don't want to fight a war over that uh, body of water. Um, so the alternative is testing. And the testing, the, the sort of ultimate outcome of a prolonged period of testing that I sort of can imagine is that China builds a few more aircraft carriers, it continues to build up its military strength, the United States finds, uh, reaches the kind of practical limits of what it wishes to deploy in terms of men and materiel in East Asia and the sorts of alliance relationships with uh, uh, which it can sustain in that part of the world, and, and a balance emerges. Um, and around that balance, kind of rules of the road and a kind of a, a, a more rules-based sense of what, what will be permissible. And yet it seems to me the whole thrust of your, your, your uh, conclusion is that China is <clears throat> on the march. It ha feels it has a rightful place, in, particularly in Asia, but also in the world. Mm -hmm. That in many ways, countries like Japan and the US are in the way, and it is not our business to be there. Now, Japan may be another question. Given that, uh, it's very hard for me to imagine, I mean, if, if you subscribe to those sort of 
trend lines, uh, that we could come to some accommodation. But on top of the tense political situation, French noted that there are also social and economic issues within China that make it even more precarious. So I think we're in a very dangerous period. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the, my sense of the period of maximum danger is the next 10 to 15 years. And the reason why I think this is the most dangerous period is that China is feeling its oats. Yeah. Um, but China is also aware of pending sharp limitations to its power that will come in the form of uh, its uh, its eventual or gradual transformation into what I'm going to call a normal economy. And a normal economy means not a big economy that grows 8, 10, 12 percent a year anymore, but rather an economy that grows 3, 4, in really, really good times, 5 percent a year. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe sometimes 1 or 2 percent a year. But that's where China is going to be one day or another, and probably sooner rather than later. Yeah. So there's an awareness of that. And there's an awareness that coupled with that, China is going to face a demographic crisis, or to be less dramatic, change or transition of a size and scope that has never been seen before in the world. And that this is going to bring immense social costs. By 2050, China will have 400 million people over the age of 65. And they have no immigration. 400 million people over the age of 65. Now, what happens to people who are over 65? Um, I'm not going to linger on that question. <laughs> uh, I lost both of my parents in the not-so-distant past. Um, you know, um, it's costly. It's dra it, it drags out. Um, it, uh, you know, uh, you think about the national scale it imposes. We are a rich country, right? And we are in a constant battle with ourselves about how to take care of basic needs like this. China, after 40 years of very fast economic growth, is as wealthy on a per capita basis as Japan was in 1970. And it doesn't have a robust safety, social safety net at all yet. And this avalanche of aging is about to hit it. And with a per capita basis uh, GDP wealth like Japan in the 1970s, not like America today or Japan, or, or Japan today or Italy or Finland or some, Korea today, all of which are rich societies wrestling with questions of social costs and, 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 and pension and retirement and health care, et cetera. Uh, Japan with, uh, China with the wealth of Japan in 1970 on a scale never seen before in history is going to have to deal with all of this. And I think this means for the Chinese leadership, knowing that the economy is going to slow down, that they have a moment of opportunity now. And that moment of opportunity, I think, is called the next 10 or 15 years. And that they should lock in as many gains as they can now, because they know that in 10 or 15 years, the bill is going to come due in a horrendous way. And they will be constrained. Whatever they might wish to do, they're going to be constrained by the costs of this, this transition. So last question, if the next 10 years is a period where they've got to lock in all their gains, right. what should the United States do? What, how should we deport ourselves in, in, uh, in the face of this challenge? There are a lot of things that we have been doing that I think uh, were, uh, were well advised up until January. Um, um, we should um, uh, nurture healthy and robust alliance relationships in the region. We should maintain uh, the best bilateral ties we can with China. We should en engage China at every level that we can, including the military level. Mm -hmm. We should try to uh, f uh, prevent 
um, the emergence of uh, arms races in new technological domains wherever possible. Um, and uh, we should uh, welcome China's initiatives in the global system. Uh, this is the one area where we did not do so well uh, among the various things I've mentioned under the Obama administration. Uh, when China launches um, <coughs> Uh, an investment uh, bank for infrastructure in Asia or an initiative like the Silk, um, like One Belt, One Road to integrate um, the economies and to build things across Asia, we should say fine. We shouldn't just say fine. We should say we'd like to be a charter member. Let's join. Let's get involved. Let's lend our expertise. We have something to contribute here to make China feel more like they are not regarded as um, unwelcome insurgents and more like partners, mm -hmm. uh, and that this is the best hope of, there's no way a rivalry is going to be avoided. But, but this of course, is, our political systems and value systems make it, make it almost impossible to jump over that sense of something dividing us and even making us uh, at least in contradiction, if not rivals. Well, so there's anxiety that comes with being an incumbent, looking in the rearview mirror and seeing somebody gaining on you. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is. You think it matters that our political systems are so different in our calculus of, of, of that person that we see in the rearview mirror? Yes. Yeah. So I tell my students what kind of China society China becomes in the future is the most important question in the world. Yeah. I don't want China to be uh, uh, fit under sort of rubric A, B, or C through any perverse personal needs of my own. I, I want good things for China as a human being. Mm -hmm. And the more humane and the more open uh, China becomes as a polity and as a civilization, the better it is not just for Chinese people, but for everybody. Thank you for listening to Asia Abridged. If you want to hear more, you can visit our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.